Well, good to see all of you here this morning. And always so good to just see the, see the joy and hear the laughter and the falling water bottles. And... <laughs> all of that. So, all right, let's, uh, let's open to First Peter again. This is, this is an interesting section. It's a difficult section. It's not one. I mean, when you see that, be holy as I am holy, this is, this is a portion of Scripture, might I say, that a lot of people would avoid today. I mean, we don't, we don't hear a lot about holiness. We sing about God being holy, but do we understand what that means? And we, I think, rarely make any application to what does his holiness mean for my life other than the receptivity of it. I'm glad he's holy and I worship him, but what does it mean practically in any kind of change in my life living as a Christian as his representative? So it's a difficult topic. It's not an easy sell. It's not popular, but we need to work through this very carefully so that there's no misunderstanding, so that we get what he is talking about. So if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this whole uh, subject matter of holiness, as I mentioned. And so he, he says in um, verse 15, but like the Holy One who called you, be yourselves also, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Verse 16, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So this morning we're going to look at verse 17. That's as far as we're going to go because he's telling us now, why should you be holy in all your behavior? So he gave us a command. It's an imperative in the original language. That would be enough but he's very practical here. Peter is talking to, again, people that are spread out, they're beat up, they're, they're being persecuted for your, their faith, not much unlike we see something coming on the horizon. We're not quite there yet, but we're feeling it. We're feeling now being marginalized as Christians. Our, our voice is not being heard or respected anymore. Many, many Christians, even in the West, are beginning to be persecuted. So we need to listen up. So verse 17, let's look at it together this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, open to 1 Peter chapter 1. Let's stand and we'll read that verse together. So Peter writes once more under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Verse 17, and if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we just ask as we look at this verse together this morning, as we consider what Peter is talking about being holy, living lives of holiness, because you are holy, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that you would help our hearts right now to be tender, to accept the truth, not to, not to reject it, not to walk away from it, not to shake our heads and say, I just don't get it. This is too difficult. But to allow you to be our teacher this morning, we ask for that, Lord. We pray together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, together. Amen. Well, as we begin talking about this this morning, I, I want you to suppose our church experience 
this morning was something very, very different from it is right now. So we've been talking about all these, these pleasant things and, and uh, the fellowship is great and there's a lot of laughing and joking, but let's say it was something very different. Let's say first off, we were meeting not on this much cooler day today, but we were meeting on that 105 degree temperature day earlier in the week or whatever the temperature was wherever you were. We're meeting outside, we're meeting in the middle of the backfield behind the church, no umbrellas, no canopies, no sunshades or hats allowed. Seating is not in chairs, it's not in camp chairs, it's on wooden blocks. All men are required to wear full three-piece suits. The message will be just under two hours and be in Latin. Music will be a 45-minute violin solo by someone who just took up learning the violin a week ago. And no parking on church property and no snacks and only hose water will be provided. You've got to bring your own bottle. And what if all this was communicated well in advance by announcement? Tom announced it weeks ahead of time by email, on the church's website, little signs, little handouts, posters, everywhere. Well, that would bring us to the question then, how many of you would be there? I know I wouldn't even come. <laughs> so this is all based upon, as we think through how ridiculous a scenario like that sounds. This is all based upon the power of incentive. What makes you leap into action? What, what motivates you? What, what motivates us to participate? Incentive. That's what drives us, what gets us going each day, what keeps us battling snooze alarms and, and terrible traffic on I-205 to get to work, fuels so many of our, our regular responsibilities. With our hypothetical Christian church service that sounds so ridiculous, there are none, really, except a, a long list, we might say, of incentives not to come, right? Right? So how does this relate to what we've just looked at in 1 Peter 1.17? Well, now here, as I've already talked about, is this difficult push to action that is hitched to Peter's command under the inspiration of God's Spirit. It's there. It's clear. It's in our Bibles. We can read it ourselves. Be holy. Again, I just read it a moment ago. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior. That's difficult. What's, what's the incentive? The command here, the imperative, is also very personal. Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, as well as we're going to see the, a form of the pronoun, personal pronoun used three more times in verse 17. It's non-optional. It's God's timeless design for all of us who know Jesus Christ, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, not just for some form of super saint that's definitely not me, some separate category of, of super Christian that has something that I don't have. The command is the same for all of us to be holy, to be set apart, to, to be separate, to be different. Not caught up, he says, in the, in the former lusts and desires that are associated with a life not in Christ. 
that are associated with anti-God value systems in our world that have nothing to do with Christianity. Well, then, what incentive is there? What, what moves us to action? What causes us to, to take this seriously this morning? Well, I believe here, just in this one verse, the verse we just read together, verse 17, there in your Bibles, that Peter gives us the first three of four vital incentives to biblical holiness. We're going to look at the fourth one next Sunday, verses 18 through 21. But let's just concentrate where we were just a moment together, together in verse 17. We're going to find three incentives that Peter is telling us hitched on to his command to be holy. So that holiness statement doesn't just end there. It continues on, which happens so often in our Bibles. It's almost like a, a run-on sentence grammatically in the Greek language. So he's not finished. So the first thing, and we can see that in verse 17, because grammatically it actually starts with and, which is attaching it to the previous verses. So let's look at the first incentive in verse 17. It comes at the beginning of the verse. They're all phrases using different grammatical language that we might not catch right on the surface. That's why it's so important for us to kind of dig in together this morning and see, well, what is Peter really telling us? So number one is remember whose opinion matters most. Remember, firstly, whose opinion matters most. And I'm going to give you a key word for each one of these incentives this morning. The first one found in the text is judges. Judges. So look again at that first phrase, the beginning of verse 17. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work. Okay? So what's he talking about there? Why does he bring that up? Well, as I mentioned, the and connects it to that idea. So we know that it's just coming off the same thing that we've looked at to be holy. And then he uses the word if. Here, better understood, and this might be in the translation that you're using, the word since. Not if, but since. Because the word address he's using there is in the verb tense meaning, this is something that you're already doing. So this isn't an, an typically what we would list under an if column. If meaning, well, maybe, maybe not. But since you're already doing this, it's personal, and you're doing this all the time already, Peter is telling his audience and us by timeless extension, what? What are they already doing? Well, here's Peter's simple logic. Okay, you're very comfortable as Christians doing this, calling upon God as your father. Okay, this was pretty new to Christianity, being able to address God in very familiar type terms like Abba, Father, Papa, Father. And he said, you're very excited about this because you do it all the time. You do it every day. You do it multiple times a day. In fact, to illustrate this, the word father is actually at the beginning of that sentence in verse 17, in the first word, which is emphatic, meaning that this is something that you are excited about. There's wonder about it. Wow, 
I can address him as father. There's a sense of privilege about it. I am so privileged as a Christian being in Christ that, that I have direct access to God the Father. So Peter is saying, with that in mind, this is something you're doing already. You're excited about it. You're able to get near to God. You're able to address him as your very father. He says, remember who it is you're addressing. And that's why he adds the phrase, who impartially judges. So this one that we're addressing, this father, has no favorites, as even an earthly father should. He has no specific, specific spiritual pets who have some inside track or hotline to him, as an earthly father should not. He is still and, and always a righteous, holy judge, meaning what? He's not a spiritual pushover because you've been a Christian for so long. He doesn't look the other way. He is, he is a father and is not going to wink at sin nor permit us to carry on with it. Now, we can even learn more grammatically here by the word judges. Here is the verb. It's in the present tense. So it's unlikely we're talking about future judgment. It may allude to that, but it's unlikely. The immediate application is right now, is to spiritual discipline. Now, see, that's not an easy topic to sell. But this is the reality of an incentive to living holy, is God cares about us as a father. Are you getting Peter's logic? We're very comfortable with with addressing him as father, we like that role. We, we love that he's our Abba. Well, that translates over here as well because a father is going to also discipline. And God has told us that's one of the ways that he loves us, right? Isn't that true? Most of us are somewhat familiar with Hebrews chapter 12, although it may be somewhat uncomfortable. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? Are you comfortable with that passage? It's a pretty long passage, isn't it? But it's not something we really like to think about. And yet it's very easy to transfer that in the logic part of our brains to an earthly father. If you heard of a friend of yours who has a, had a lot of kids, maybe five or six kids, and you went over to his house and, and he said, well, what are all your kids doing? You hear all this racket going on inside the house. You're sitting out in the front yard. And they said, oh, they're just playing army. 
And he said, well, it's starting to sound a little violent in there. And you, you walk in the house and they're, they're actually using real butcher knives. <laughs> and they're running around with sticks that were dipped in gasoline and they're on fire. And, oh, we're just playing army. Dad says it's okay. How would you respond to that? What if you went and visited another dad who you had a lot of respect for and he happened to have a piece of property right out there on Redland Road? Had a bunch of little kids, all kids under 10 years old, a whole bunch of them. And you drove up to the house and you had to dodge a bunch of the kids. They were actually riding their bikes and riding on scooters and chasing balls across Redland Road and cars are stopping and screeching to a halt and you pull into the property and you're like, what's going on here? These kids are going to get killed. And the dad's just sitting there in a nice lounge chair in the front yard and saying, oh, they'll be fine. They do it all the time. We used to have a lot more, but... <laughs> what would you think? I think this guy's lost his mind, right? We would never have respect for a parent like that because we expect parents to keep their children in a place of safety. We expect parents to know what's going on in their lives all of the time. I, I know my wife, for instance, was never wanted to be out of earshot of our children. Now, it wasn't a control thing. This is when they were little, but she wanted to know how they were talking to each other. She wanted to always know what they were doing, but also how they were getting along so that she wouldn't allow them at any point for any of that to get out of control. Now, Jessica could probably tell me other stories, <laughs> but at least this is what we thought was happening. <laughs> but see, we make that transference very easily. We say, yes, a father loves his children or doesn't exhibit any love for his children based upon the way that he cares for them and disciplines them. Well, Peter is making that same argument. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 is making that same argument, that God disciplines those who he loves. It's a love relationship. What kind of father would God be if he winked at us in sin? If he could care less what we get involved with? If we just say, holiness, that's stupid. I don't even care about that. I have fire insurance. I know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll live however I want. It doesn't make any sense, does it? So we need to be careful we understand the incentive, the argument here to live a holy life. That God is a judge and God is not going to turn the other way because he deeply loves his children in a love that's something we don't even know. It's an unconditional love that's completely and totally holy and perfect. We make attempts at that. But so often we have selfish motives. So often we do the wrong thing. So often we turn and away from a situation because we just don't want to get involved again. We don't want confrontation. God's not like that. His love is perfect. So he's saying that's incentive number one. We need to remember who he is as our father. That he cares. He's 
He's not going to let us get away with it, not because he's a bad, mean guy, but because he loves us more than anybody on the face of this earth loves us. Here's a second incentive. Remember who we are serving first. So this kind of piggybacks on the first idea, but remember who we are serving first. The key word here in the verse would be the word fear. So if we go back to verse 17, it says, conduct yourselves in fear is the next phrase, which is kind of the main emphasis of the verse. This is the main imperative, the main command, the main action part is conduct yourselves in fear. Well, what does that mean? Well, conduct yourselves literally means live your lives. Okay, so that should be pretty obvious. If you have an NIV, that's how it's translated. But it's linked back grammatically to the same thing, to, to being holy, to living holy. Well, how? He tells us simply, in fear. In fear. Well, what does that mean? That sounds kind of ridiculous, doesn't it? In fear? I mean, we're told we shouldn't fear things, that fear amounts to phobias and they can be irrational and we try to overcome our fears to accomplish things, but he's saying do something in fear. So what is he talking about here? Well, this is a word, a verb, a noun, a concept that is completely biblical. From Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, it's completely biblical. We run into this same term again, whether it's been translated differently in some of the newer translations or not, the idea is the same, the word is the same, that we are to fear God. Well, well what does that mean? Immediately, probably, when I say we are to fear God, we think of cowering. We think of being afraid or scared of God. Is that what it means? Well, let's define it biblically so there's no misunderstanding. To fear God means to live our lives, conduct yourselves in reverential awe. What does that mean? To have reverence, to have respect, to have awe of God. In other words, to put it as simply as possible, remember who God is. When we say we're a Christian and we say we love God, remember who we're talking about. So when we say we're a Christian, it doesn't just mean, oh, we're part of that whole Christian subculture and we go to church and we go to programs and activities and do all kinds of Christian stuff and everything. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We can almost do all that and God's out here somewhere. Who's all this for? What does a relationship with God mean? Who is he? In other words, Peter is saying, he's using that spiritual logic again and the incentive of take him seriously. Take him seriously. Don't take God for granted. Don't take him too casually. Don't marginalize him or treat him as though it doesn't really matter what he thinks because you're forgiven already anyway. Because fear means to be way beyond that, 
It means to have respect. It means to have high honor. It means I don't want to disappoint him. I don't want to displease him. I don't want to offend him. Why? Because I love him. Because of who he is. He has rescued my life. He is holy and perfect. He is the only one. There is no one higher he saved me. He sacrificed himself for me. He's fully forgiven me. How do I respond to that? We don't talk much about God-fearing people anymore, do we? You remember that phrase? Some of you that are younger, maybe you've never even heard it. But it used to be, maybe not common, but you would hear it. God-fearing. What happened to it? Why don't we say that anymore? And if we said, can you think of somebody who is a God-fearing believer? You might think on one hand, uh, yeah, there's well, that guy. Well, maybe not. Um, there's those, that cup. Well, yeah. And there's this other guy. Um, we don't think about that anymore, do we? And we really don't think about even other believers that much that way anymore. And yet that's a biblical reality. A God-fearing man, a God-fearing woman, a God-fearing young person. What's wrong with that? It means that you have a reverence and respect for God. He's not just your homeboy buddy. He's not just your pal. He's not just there when you need something. Because if that's all he is, he's no more than a spiritual divine genie. But he's God. And when he says something in his word, I, I take it seriously. Because this is God's word. This isn't somebody's opinion, a Bible translator's opinion. This is the absolute, infallible, holy word of God. Do you agree with that? That's why I have you stand when we read the Word of God. It doesn't sound like much, but the only reason we do it is out of respect. Because it's His Word. We need to be very, very careful here. Thirdly, the third incentive that He gives us in verse 17 is remember who determines our days here. Remember who determines our days here. And the key words, because really there's two of them, are time and stay. So if you look at the rest of verse 17, he says, during the time of your stay upon the earth. Let's put all that in context. If you address us, Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, Conduct yourselves, or literally live your lives, in fear or reverential awe during the time of your stay upon the earth. So who predetermines our exact time here on earth? The emphasis in the original language is, is interesting here. It's on the sojourning nature of our stay. So it literally reads to walk alongside your house. Now, I found this very interesting. So that's how we would literally say it, to walk alongside your house. Now, this is in contrast to the more common expression for home, meaning settled house. Do you get the idea? 
a sojourner is walking alongside their house. The more common word for house is to be settled. It's, it's more of a, a permanent living kind of situation. So the idea here and the emphasis at the end of verse 17 is life is short. Life is too short to get bogged down with stuff that interferes or interrupts living. How? A holy life. Taking God seriously. Really living for him. Not taking him for granted. Not taking his word for granted. Life is just too short. Now here's the irony, okay? So most of us really struggle here. Why? Because so often we hear the phrases, I have no time, or I'm too busy, or I'm too distracted. Yet, think with me here. Shouldn't it just be the opposite? I'm so consumed with God, I'm too busy for stuff that doesn't matter. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's kind of an irony. It, things that don't matter in the end. Things that are a waste of time. I think Peter's trying to tell us something throughout his word. He begins, First Peter, telling us we're strangers and aliens. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says the same thing. You are, by identity, strangers and aliens. So as I mentioned a couple of weeks back, Peter, when he made this comment, when he's introducing who his immediate recipients are of this letter, he's calling them strangers and aliens. Now, by application, we could say, well, we know that. I've repeated it numerous times. They're not living in their own homes anymore. They're not at their own jobs. Many of them have been kicked out of their families, left their friends. They're scattered around in places they've never lived before. Strangers and aliens. That makes sense. Now, in chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, what? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What do you think he's talking about there? Now we're all strangers and aliens in a different way. So spiritually, he's now, he's made the leap. I love this. Only scripture could do this. He's made the leap from this real gritty kind of thing that we can't really identify with because we live in our homes. Some of us have lived in Oregon or in this area our entire lives. Or we've lived in our homes for many, many <clears throat> years. We're comfortable there. But now he's made this leap from, well, this is what it looks like in the gritty world. This is reality to now this is a part of your identity. All of you are strangers and aliens spiritually. Because this is not our home. No matter how many years you've been in your home in Oregon, this is not your home. Your home is in heaven and all of this is going to be gone in an instant. That's his incentive. Your stay is short and your stay is predetermined by the one you call on every day, by the term father. Now, these last 12 to 15 months have been some of the most difficult in my life. And I've shared with you many times. I've had more people die in the last 15 months 
than I can ever remember. Relatives, my own father, my brother-in-law, a great uncle, a cousin who just passed away, by the way, a couple of weeks ago in Spokane. Uh, my mother's brother's son. And numerous people in our fellowship here. More than since I've been here. We've been here almost 29 years. It's been difficult. It's been really, really difficult. There's been times I've just felt beat up. Dear friend of mine died last February, suddenly. But what I was thinking about, all these people are gone. But most of them knew the Lord. So they're not gone. They're not gone. And we will see them again. What if we had the unique privilege of, of hearing from them now? I know that'd be weird, but what if we somehow had that privilege that they could tell us something? Yeah, I lived 30 years, or I lived 45 years, or yeah, I was able to live 90-some years, or I lived 70-something years. But they could tell us what to do with the time we had left. Because they lived it. They lived life just like you and I, but they're not here anymore. Their opportunity to do all the different choices that we have, all the stuff that we can do is over. It's gone. They're, they're in heaven. They're in the presence of the Lord. But what if they could tell us, yeah, what should we do with the time we have left? They'd say, well, let me tell you. Would we take them seriously? Would we? Or we'd say, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know anything. That's not true. They'd say, what? I lived life. I lived longer than you did. And now I'm on the other side. You don't think I know? Take God seriously. Do you think they'd tell us that? Do you think they'd say, take his word seriously because it's absolutely true. Every word of it. You think they'd say that? You think they'd say, don't get caught up in all of this stuff that's just going to distract you and waste your time. Oh, that's such a waste of time. I did that too. It was a waste. You think they'd say that? You think they'd have an idea about what would be the most important thing to do or would they struggle? Well, there's a list. I don't know. Let me think. Do you think they'd be pretty decisive about what was at the top? And what would it be? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. These are difficult things. They really challenge us. They cause us to think. They cause us to look at our lives and say, how can we do this different? But that's a good thing. And I pray, Lord, that rather than struggle with it, that your Holy Spirit would just give us clarity, conviction, and give us the power and the strength to do these things. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.